Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. The scripture reading this morning is James 2, verse 1 and verses 5 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture— love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder... You have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. All right. As we turned back to our text this morning, as I just said, the last few weeks, we've been looking at every single word of our vision. And we've, we've, we've flushed that out. What I want to do now, for the next three weeks, is I want to look at our missional statements connected to our vision. Now, don't worry. We're not going to look at every single word. We're going to only look at each line. There's three of them. And if the vision is what we want to be, to joyfully live as God's love together, as reflections of God's love together in the city, then our, our mission is the ways we're going to do that. This is actually good news, because I've always been frustrated when individuals or institutions, they give you a vision, and they say, now figure it out. Go figure out how to joyfully live as reflections. But we, we, we've, we've, we've done better than that. We've actually listed out the three different missional statements of how to do that, and how to actually do that. And so the first missional statement is this, that we are to be a church not just for ourselves, but for others. We've been saying that since day one. But today we're going to look at the scripture passage here in James 2 that's going to show us what this looks like. So let's look at this in three ways. Let's look at the problem of the other, the gospel of the other, and then living for the other. So the problem of the other, the gospel for the other, and then what does it look like to live for others? First, the problem of the other. How are we going to be a church not just for ourselves but for others? James tells us in this passage, James 2, unequivocally, unambiguously, the grounds, the basis for how to do that. And he starts with here in verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. If we're going to be a church, not for ourselves but for others, 
He says we must not show favoritism. By the way, uh, we, we're jumping straight into the book of James, but if you look, zoom out and look over the whole book, he rarely actually cites Jesus. But here he does, and I think he's doing so because he's trying to say, hey, if, you, if this is your dude, if this is your guy, if this is your king, then what it means to be a Christian is to not show favoritism. Um, he, of course, had to say this. Why was he, this is a letter, right? Why is he saying this? He's saying this because the people he's writing to, the churches he was talking to, clearly had a problem about showing favoritism. The, the, another, if you go to the ESV, if you go to some other translations, they'll use the word partiality, and I'll, I'll use that word um, interchangeably, because they actually, it's, it's, they're both correct. The Greek word is actually a compound word. It's two words fused together. It's the Greek word for face and the Greek word for approaching or receiving. And so to show favoritism or partiality, it's this great image of you see somebody's face and you either move, you approach them more or, or you pull further away from them. And, um, you know, you can do this on many different levels, right? It's treating people differently based on what you see from them or how they look. And this is the struggle for the church. And this is a struggle for individuals. This is the struggle for all of humanity. Because guess what? You can be partial. You can be, show favoritism in so many ways. You can do it based on somebody's attractiveness. You can do it based on somebody's uh, funniness or how funny they are. You can do it based on their race, their gender, uh, their economic status. And it's, I don't think I need to point this out to you, but we're actually living in a cultural moment right now where we're hyper aware about both how individuals as well as structures and culture has shown partiality based on race, gender, marital status, singleness, or married people. You can show favoritism, you can show partiality on marital status, on attractiveness, on money. And we're pointing this out culturally right now. But what I find really interesting is we're actually, you know what we're not doing? We're not spending a ton of time going into the why. Like why, like why are we doing this? And I think if you explore that question, you, you'll find this is, there's something innate in human nature that does this. Did you know this? Did you know that we actually, people who are attractive make more money than people who are not attractive? This is not just in, in New York and America. This is every culture, people who are attractive make more people than who are not attractive. And scientists think it's because we have, there's something about our humanness where we move towards people, we favor people who are attractive. That's a fact. Here's another fact. Uh, scientists have pointed out that uh, people of the same race are able to see and recognize facial features and mannerisms in other individuals of the same race better than people who are of a different race. This is why people tend to think various races look more similar when actually internally there's many, many distinctions and mannerisms and facial features. And psychologists have actually, they have a term for this. They call it own race bias. And it's one of the factors about why we gravitate towards some people than other people. What's the point? The point is this. Nobody taught you this. Nobody uh, uh, made this happen. This is ingrained. It's in our psychology. It's in our DNA. It's in our nature. And we don't even know, often know that we're doing this, but we naturally show favoritism. We naturally are partial Every single day, that's the problem. That's the problem that we have here. 
We didn't, by the way, we didn't print the verses in, in the text, but James gives his own examples. Verses 2 through 4, he gives an example of economic favoritism. He, he gives an example of rich and poor. And in our minds, we know that's wrong. And yet we live in Manhattan. I mean, if you take the demographic of, of, of Manhattan, it shows actually the majority of individuals living here have multiple advanced degrees. The, ma- the majority of people in Manhattan. And if you take the zip codes of where Lincoln Square, where, where this church is located, the zip codes in this area are some of the highest and richest and wealthiest forms of con- concentration of wealth in the United States per capita. Right here, and that, which means it's some of the highest concentrations of wealth in the world as well. And w- w- the problem is, is when you're in this space, most people don't realize how unapproachable we can actually be. Um, many people try to come into this community, but if you don't have the right degree, if you don't act a certain way, if you don't dress a certain way, if you don't look a certain way, if you don't talk a certain way, anybody not in that in-group will feel excluded. We've talked with people. I've heard stories, heartbreaking stories of people who've actually come into our church. They've actually come here. They stepped in our doors, and they're like, ooh, this isn't for me. And it's a heartbreaking it's a heartbreaking stories to hear that. It's, um, it's natural, and James is saying it's wrong. It's flat out wrong. And if you say, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's just a few bad apples. Maybe just a few people do this, and they're judgy and exclude people. But James won't let us get away with that. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, he has an answer for this. He says, is not the rich exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you to court? It's almost like as if he's saying, guys, Guys, we know this story, right? We know this game. You've, you yourself have experienced partiality. You've experienced what it's like when the well-off people drag you to court. They probably give you false accusations, but they know they can afford to take you to court. But in, because you're poorer than them, they, you can't afford it, but they don't care because they're just going to run you into the ground. Which means this doesn't just happen on an individual level. This is actually happening... Right, on a cultural level, on a systemic level as well. And what James is saying is, what's fascinating is, you have done this, you've experienced this yourself, and yet somehow it's not stopping you from turning around and doing it now to others. It doesn't matter if you, have, if, if you are not the one who've experienced this, you will turn around and still do it to other people. And notice, for James, I, I, this, this always bothers me, James both gives an example of an individual type of partiality, but then also a corporate and systemic and we're not supposed to pit those two things against each other. It's, oh, it's, that's too simplistic to do that. Both are here. And so you can show it, you can show favoritism individually, corporately, systemically. You can do it unknowingly. You can do it knowingly. But this is the problem. And if you think this is just a problem inside the church, uh, uh, t- look at 20th century um, continental philosopher Jacques Derrida. Derrida thinks this is the problem of all of culture. It's the problem of what he calls of including the other. He doesn't think there's any way that you can do that without doing violence to other because the minute whoever other is in your mind, the minute you try to include them and bring them in, you categorize them and therefore you, you define them which limits them and actually create, does violence against that group. There's no way not to do that. And this is why I think, I think we're, we're culturally obsessed with authenticity and individuality because we think that's going to keep us from, from squashing people or limiting them or kind of, uh, you know, painting people with broad strokes. 
I've seen various cultures, when they try to include other cultures, they end up flattening that culture. And then when that culture tries to talk about the other culture, it flattens that culture. There's not a way not to do this. And so, friends, before we move on, where are we showing partiality? Where are we doing that? Where, where are we doing this in our personal relationships, whom we hang out with, unknowingly or knowingly? Where are we unknowingly potentially excluding people in our midst, right? Where are we as married people only hanging out with other married people? Where are we as single people only hanging out with single people? Where are we doing this in our own race or our, our own class? And are you doing this in our friend groups? Because if you're a Christian, are we just in our service, we have this, this face of confession. We're supposed, what's confession? Confession's where we admit and we're honest about what's going on. When was the last time we've repented of our partiality, of our, of our favoritism, whether it's individually or corporately. When, when have we done that? We can't joyfully live as God's love together unless we're a church that's not just for ourselves, for others, period. And we can't do that if we, whoever we've deemed as other is not included or invited or loved on or there's at least some level of interaction going on there. And, I, and I'm not just saying you, I'm saying we. I'm saying us. So that's the problem. All right. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com. Or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Solution. What's the solution here? Well, before we get to James's answer that's in our text, we have to look at our culture. Because our t- culture is talking about this right now. And we shouldn't care about it just because they care about it. Because right uh, American Western culture might, might care about it now, but obviously didn't in the past, and maybe again in the future that they won't. So that can't be our reasons to care about this. That can't be our barometer. But what's the cultural solution? If I could boil it down, I think the cultural solution for the problem of partiality and favoritism is the same solution you're not going to find in America. You're going to find this in every other culture out there. It boils down to this. How do you fix this? Essentially, be good, try hard, do better. It boils down to that. Be good, try hard, do better. Uh, um, I know it's a little early for Santa Claus right now, but you know the song, right? You better watch out, you better not cry. I'm not going to sing it. Right? But if you go on to the next verse, right, what does he say? He says he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Right? He knows who's been bad or good. What is that? You thought it was a Christmas song, but it's not. It's cultural pressure. It's coming after you. It's cultural pressure in a Christmas song to be good. What is that? See, culture does this. Culture says racism's bad, sexism's bad, classism is bad. What's the answer? Do better, right? Do better culturally. Do better individually. Do, do better corporately. Do better personally. Now, if you think culture's just saying that, guess what? Every other religion of the world says the same thing. Every other religion says, hey, if you do this and you do this, you just you follow our law codes, then you'll get nirvana, then you'll get heaven, then things will be fixed, then you'll get enlightenment. 
Secular culture says do better. Religious culture says be good, try hard, do better. I think Christianity is different. I look at this text, and Christianity, the answer for partiality and favoritism, look at verse 5, the very next verse after we, we, we print it here. He says, listen. It's almost like, wake up. Listen. My dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit, inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, we need to focus on the logic. Is he saying here in that phrase, do better? No, he's not. He's not saying try harder. No, he's saying you're poor, you were poor, but now you get to inherit the kingdom. You don't earn this. You can't do better. He's appealing to a completely different motivation. Instead of the will of try do better, he's appealing to your heart. He's saying the gospel is not obey and then you get God. He's saying... You have been chosen, right? That's the, these are the words. You've been chosen. You have inherited. You've had these things. Now don't you want to obey? In other words, he's saying at the end of the day, the problem is not that you need to do better. The problem is you've forgotten the gospel. And when you've forgotten the gospel, what is that at, the, at your heart? It means when you, if you forget it, how dare you? How dare you? If you are poor in spirit, right? If you're that poor in spirit, how dare you look down on somebody else who's poorer in spirit? How dare you look down on somebody else who has less than you? And what he's trying to get is this. If you're a Christian, what the gospel says is, I don't care how poor you are. I don't care how messed up you are. I don't care how broken you are. I don't care how incomplete you are. You have been accepted. You have been brought in. You have, been inher you have inherited this family of God right now. This is why, by the way, why do you think Christianity is thriving? It's blowing up in countries that are poor, but languishing in the rich ones. Why is that? It's because when you're rich, it's harder to understand you're really poor. And only when you have nothing does Jesus actually become everything. In uh, season one of Ted Lasso, yes, it's coming. I need, I, I've been waiting, and here it is. In season one of Ted Lasso, Rebecca, the owner of the soccer club, hires an American college football coach because she wants to ruin the club that she owns. She wants it to fail miserably to hurt her ex-husband who loved that team. And in, later in the first season, and if you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault, later in the season, she confesses to Ted, and she used a little more colorful language than I'm allowed to here, so I'm going to edit what she says, but she says this, Ted, I have something to tell you. I have been terrible. Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted the team to lose. I wanted you to fail. I sabotaged you every chance I had. This club is all that Rupert ever cared about, and I wanted to destroy it to cause him as much pain and suffering as I could cause him. And I didn't care who I used. I didn't care who I hurt. Ted, I'm sorry. If you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. And in the scene, the very next words that Ted issues is this, I forgive you. Which she replies, what did she say? She said, you what? Why? And this is what's beautiful, is when Rebecca, in that moment, she'd been hiding from it, she didn't want to, her friends were saying, you got to really go, and she, when she finally was able to admit 
and, and be poor in spirit and actually say, I'm, I am in need. I did this. I'm sorry. And when Ted forgives, her entire story arc changes. She, later on, she's able to forgive her mother and her father. In fact, every other character, I would argue, in the series, Ted himself, Roy, Jamie, every character throughout the seasons, when they realize they're poor in spirit, when they're willing to admit that, and they have nothing left, and they apologize, and other people forgive them, it changes them and everybody else around them. And the reason why is because of this. When you're poor in spirit, when you really, really understand that, and you go into that, and you humble yourself, what you're able to do is the one who's, who gets to the bottom and is spiritually poor, that, they're the ones who can actually become, and actually do become spiritually rich. Just as, this, is, this, is, this is exactly what James is saying. He's saying, guess what? If you're preferring the rich, if you're preferring the, well, the, your, the people who you want to associate with, what's happening there when you prefer the rich and the powerful, your own race, your own gender, you're forgetting in that moment that actually you're poor and it's killing you. That's what's killing you. And I think Ted Lasso is basically a story of how every single person who does forgive and repent not only do they change, but they change everybody else around them, but it can only happen when they are able to spiritually admit and be humble and go down because only those people know they need to change, but only people who know that they need to change are the ones who finally can. And James is saying that's the essence of the gospel. When you know that you're down and that you admit it, then and only then can you become rich. That's why I find it fascinating. There are people today that say, you know the problem with Christianity? The problem with Christianity is that Christians believe what they believe too much. That's why there's fundamentalism. That's why there's sexism and racism and, um, you know, every other ism that's in the church. But James is saying, no, Christians who are racist or classist or sexist, no, we don't believe Christianity enough. Because what's at the core of Christianity? It's a man who dies for his enemies, and if you place at the core of who you are, you would die for your enemies, right? If you took the core of Christianity, who, who is a man who says, hey, whoever is the other, I'm going to die for the other. If you place at the core of your life, whoever you've deemed, however you classified other, you would love them too. He died for outsiders. I'm going to die for outsiders. And this is why, this is why if you, we, this was in our hearts, if Christianity was at the center of our being, it would turn us into people who forgave and repented. It would turn us into Ted Lasso's who deeply know that we've been forgiven. And when you know you've been forgiven, now you can repent openly and honestly and fully and completely. If this church did this, we would not just be a church for ourselves. We would be a church for others. And so the question is not pull away, become less Christian. Say, no, James is saying go further in into the glorious truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and has been and will be for you. Before we move on, have we connected our faith, what we say we believe, into our lives, into our actions in this way? Is this at the core of who we are or is something else at the core of who we are? Is this the engine? Is this the driving force for our being or is it not? Because if it's you, if I think this is my, this is my belief, if, it's, if the core of who you are is you, you're not going to be able to forget, forgive and repent in this way. You're going to have to center yourself or you're going to try to associate yourself with other powers, other principalities, other people who are similar to you. But if he is at the core of who you are, I would argue it would change the world. So last point, living for the other. We've talked about the problem. 
We've talked about the gospel good news solution. So why are, do we as individuals, do we corporately, and why do we as a church still struggle with not being, being a church, not just for ourselves, but for others? Right? We, we, have the, we have the content. I've given you the content. We've talked about this before. Why do we still struggle? I'll give you some lists. Is it because maybe we just want to be comfortable? Probably, to some degree. Is it that we're too busy? We live in New York. We live in Manhattan. And everybody's time is stretched. Is that the problem? We're too busy. To some degree, too. But I think that reveals something. Do we not, do we not always do what's necessary at the end of the day? What's necessary? Shower, brush your teeth, clean your nails, some of you. I mean, like, what's, what's necessary? Because you know what happens? We always do what's necessary at some level. And if this definition, if this is the definition of what it means to be the church, to do that, we're going to have to go to war against our natural partiality in our hearts with the scalpel of the gospel to make this necessary as well. But how will that happen? That's the, it's the, I've been asking myself this question for, for years right now. How will this happen? And James, his answer to his sermon, go back to the text, the answer that he gives us, it's in verse 13 at the very end. He says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy. Now, people get confused by this. They they think James is saying, aha, you know, he's waving a finger. Aha, if you're not, you know, merciful, you're going to be judged. He sounds just like all other religions, right? But again, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The context is brothers and sisters, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who have the gospel. In that case, then, The context of this statement means this. If you're not merciful, it's possible you haven't actually experienced mercy. If you're not gracious, it's possible you haven't actually tasted and received grace. And so I've been asking myself, have I really experienced, have I really tasted his grace? Have I really absorbed that? And and as I've been asking that question, I, I, I keep reading the way he ends, the last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let that sit in you for a second. Four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. And at at first you think, oh, that's how we're supposed to be out there towards them. No, no, no. He's speaking to the brothers and sisters in the church. He's saying to you, mercy triumphs over judgment. We can start feeling bad. We start saying, oh, man, I I can't believe I've done this again. But he's looking at you and saying, you get mercy instead of judgment because you know what you should do and you don't do it. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And if I made that the anthem of my life, what would that look like? I think you know what I mean? If if this triune God, three-person God was at the core of my life, here's how the Trinity might operate in this way. Christopher Walken's points this out. He says the Trinity is the solution of the other. It's the only solution out there because in the love relationship of the Trinity, you have unity and plurality. You have, you have difference and solidarity. And what you have in, in the Trinity is otherness and sameness are perfectly integrated, perfectly in harmony. And if that's the core of who God is, and you make that the core of who you are, then we as a people would strive for this Trinitarian relationships with others. And this is where it's so fascinating. There is no other human thought category out there that does that. The cultural answer at some level to, to actually 
fix the problem will be, I will only accept you if you become like me. That's why we're just bludgeoning the, uh, the junk out of each other, because I'm only going to accept you at some level unless you finally get to my view of how to live out life. Every other system does that, racially, economically, spiritually, but the Trinity is the only place where you have sameness and difference perfectly integrated. One does not do violence to the other, because you have three and one, you have one and three. Yes, I know there's a mystery there, but when we place the Trinity at the core of who we are, what we'll see is the other is the object of God's love, of God's splendor, of his glory, deserving as much love as us. And that draws us now into relationship with other people without losing ourselves. The Trinity is our model because God, in God, you can have dignity and intimacy fused with distinctiveness and mutuality. I know those are big concepts, but that's the only way we're gonna be able to approach the other. Let me, let me try to dumb this down. Other people are a gift. Other people are, uh, we can, it's them and us at the same time. And that lets us approach people with a wonder and a curiosity as we value them for who they are. Um, Mersal Wolf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he uses this image of embrace. It's a hug. And a hug's a, a great metaphor. Because you know, you're not losing yourself in a hug, but you're opening up yourself. You're putting your arms around the other individual. You're actually... You can, by the way, you can hug somebody who doesn't hug you back, so it doesn't necessarily require them, but they can. You're giving them the space to. That's what it would look like. Open arms, hugging, we let people in, we include them. I'll try to give you one more example. Uh, a friend of mine told his church about this recently, so I looked up the story myself. It's a true story. A man named Dan Peterson. He's in his late 80s. He had just lost his wife. He was a widower. He's shopping in a grocery store, middle America. And he doesn't like to go to the grocery store because when he goes to the grocery store, it reminds him how alone he is because he's shopping for one. And he's standing in this grocery store. He hates going there. He's in there. He's sad. He's alone. He's, he's, not, he's, he's dressed in shabby clothes. His breath smells bad. He has this furrowed brow, basically like a warning sign, don't talk to me. And the way the story goes is a, a four-year-old girl, her name's Nora, was just sort of, this is pre-COVID, bouncing around, comes up to him and says, hi, old person. And the mother who was standing there was mortified and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. No, but Dan, this, this older gentleman was just happy this, this, this girl wanted to talk to him. And in that, that first interaction, she kisses his hand, takes his hand and places it on her face, smiles, and just was just smitten by this, this gentleman. She required her mother to take a picture of them that then she went home and had her printed out, put it in a frame, and she slept with this picture. And what ended up happening out of this is a relationship developed. And uh, Dan confided to the mother that he actually wasn't sleeping. Since his wife had died, he wasn't sleeping any, at all. He couldn't until relationship with Nora started. And after that, he could sleep sound, soundly again. Dan was healed by Nora. Nora didn't choose Dan because of his age, Right? He didn't say, I want to be, because you just are just like me. No, Dan had a different age, a different class, a diff difference in so many ways, but he, she didn't show partiality. She didn't run from him. She took the time to spend with him. And I'm not going to go away from you just because you're not like me. That's, I know that's a simple story, but it's just such a basic one that we could apply in so many different ways in our lives. Folks, how are we going to do this? What would this look like in your life? If we are chosen by grace, not merit, 
Where will we now love across race, age, gender, class lines with the power of the Trinity to hold sameness and diversity together, to hold unity and diversity together? I, please don't do what I do. I immediately go to excuses. Well, I'm just too busy. I'm too tired. I already have people in my life that I'm feeling at those relationships. Should I deal with those relationships first? I, the minute I start thinking next, like what should I do? I go, oh, I got 10 things, 10 excuses in half a second. Folks, mercy triumphs over judgment. It does. And then we would find people to zero in on. To be as practical as possible, start with saying that this has to become a necessity of your life because it's at the very heart of God's Trinitarian nature that is able to hold three in one and in unity and diversity together. Secondly, where are you showing partiality now? Do the inner work. Look inside. Thirdly, there are probably people around us, even in this very church, that we could even begin with to move towards them and listen because the gospel is in our lives. And then lastly, fourthly, and this is the secret sauce, if you do this, you will mess up because there's no way how we're going to be able to do this well because there's no way not to because we don't know, we're not Trinitarian in our core. We're singular. And so we need to be able to forgive and repent as we go about doing it. And you can if you know you've already been forgiven. Knowing the love of God in your life. I want this to be the core of who we are. This is the missional statement of how to flush out our vision. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. <laughs> I show partiality. I have my preferences. It's in my DNA, it's in my core, but it's also socialized, it's also systemic, it's also individual and corporate, it's everywhere, Father. And left to our own devices, we're just gonna keep dividing. We're gonna keep saying, I'll accept you if you just kind of agree with where I'm at. Help us not to do that, Father. Give us grace, which you already have, but help us to feel that grace. Let it move into the inner being of our hearts so it spills out where we would normally feel judged, mercy triumphs over judgment, judged by others, judged by you, help us to just stand, listen, take it in, embrace, whether it's, you know, small stories of meeting people in grocery stores, or deeper ones of, of getting in the nitty gritty with, with, with hard issues that are multifaceted and, and, and too, some, you know, too complicated and our simplistic minds, uh, help us not to run away. You didn't run away from us, Father. You, 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 you made us the core of who you are. You died, lived for us. Move that into our, our hearts, we pray. These things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.